Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Kamal Ibrahim is an Irish television presenter, a film and theatre producer and a public speaker. He was also the winner of Mr. World, having won the competition back in 2010. He's also an ambassador for Breast Cancer Ireland's Great Pink Run and he'll join me to talk through why it means so much to him. And Pauline Rodish started out in the Gardaí, but her gut told her she should be on another path. After many twists and turns, she has now made her career helping others tap into their intuition. She joins me to discuss her book, Just Trust. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'd have to say the key word for this week was overwhelm. The amount of information flowing through my phone and into my head from WhatsApp groups, emails, homework apps, school apps, social media. It feels like every time I open my phone to look at one thing, it sparks into another from extracurricular timetables to work events, things that need paying, people who need answers, friends who need support, courses, family. It's been a lot. And look, isn't it great to be in demand in that way? But I feel we're all at that. And I've I've said it to a couple of people, be it at the, the school gate or some of my pals, and, and everybody's feeling it. I think all those foolish promises we made ourselves in the lockdown to never get caught up in the crazy whirlwind of life again. We're just that, just foolish. There is no opting out. That's just the way life is. But when things like that happen in my life and I start to feel that overwhelm, that's when I really lean into the things that I know make a big difference to me, like going to meet a friend. Because I think sometimes when you are ploughing on and taking it all on, the impetus is to just keep going and have the head down, whereas I really make sure that I'm actually stopping and actively taking time. So I went and met a friend for lunch and a catch-up. I made sure I went for a walk around the local park. I'm going to meet friends at the beach tomorrow and I have to just bring them up to a priority. Otherwise, I don't know where the whirlwind might take me next. So... I also think that with the change in weather, a lot of people have been talking about autumn coming in and September, everything changes again. And it's a bit like harvest time, which is a busy time, pulling everything together, having a look about what we've done so far. And then hopefully we'll get to relax into the winter a little bit. I'm all on for the changing of behaviour to suit the season. Slower pace, cosy nights. I am 100% here for it. And if you were feeling overwhelmed too, I see you. I feel you. And the event I had mentioned on the show a couple of times for Purple House Cancer Support Centre took place last weekend. And it was such an amazing day. Georgie Crawford, Jerry Hussey, Dr. Cloda Campbell, dietitian Orla Walsh, life coach Mark Fennell. I'm, I'm missing some, I know, but there were so many more there. And I always feel so lucky that I get to be in the mix, not only sitting at this microphone and meeting the people that I do, but to be at events like that. I get to be an audience member as well as a host and I learn so much from them all. I also spoke to Veronica O'Leary, who set up Purple House, and Katie Boylan, who was a client there and is now on the board. And I floated away from there full of insight. And I said into my Instagram the next day that it can be easy 
to walk away from something like that a day where there's, you know, lots of talk around health and wellness and feel really fired up that you're going to change everything. And then you arrive into your normal life and the normal demands of life. And it can be really hard to know where to start. But every expert who was on that stage boiled it down to something really simple checking in with yourself, finding out what's working for you and what isn't and then taking really small steps. And a really nice thing to focus on is what can you add in rather than what can you take out? You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Kamal Ibrahim is an Irish television presenter, a film and theatre producer and a public speaker. He was also the winner of Mr. World, having won the competition in South Korea back in 2010. And he's an ambassador for Breast Cancer Ireland's Great Pink Run. And he joins me in studio now. Hello, Hello, Kamal. How are you? I'm very well. She's going back quite a few years with that Mr. World win. (laughs) Is there a certain time that you have to start dropping that? I mean, if I'd been Uh, called Miss World at any point, I'd still be lashing that around. uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know, that was 12 years ago now. God almighty, it's uh, it's just, it's, it's sickening how much time has gone by. <laughs> um, uh, no, I think, look, I mean, there's there's loads of other things that I've, I've, I'm kind of doing. It's it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, will always be proud of. Um, just maybe as long as it's not the first thing on the list. I suppose that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what was that experience like, it, albeit 12 oh, years yeah, no, ago? Look, it was great. I'll never forget it. I mean, it was like winning the Olympics for your country. It was, it was great. I think the fact that uh, you know anybody who's representing their country doing anything uh, and does well in it? Uh, I think it's a it's a proud moment, and that, that's what it was. I was there. I wasn't even known by my name. Nobody knew my name. All there were seventy four countries involved, and we all called each other by our country. So I was with, I slept with Kazakhstan. He was bunking with me, <laughs> France, and you know like Nigeria and all the like Kenya. So we were all just buddies, but it was all like countries. We were you know, and that was it. So when they say oh Ireland won, you know it was Ireland. It wasn't Kamal that won. So that was wonderful actually because I felt very very proud. Uh, and then coming home was like a whole that was like a whole whirlwind. But yeah. Because there's such a focus on the aesthetic, even though those kind of uh, competitions have have really changed how they go, did you have to... I'll be honest, I hate them. I think they are just, no. I'm so, I I never liked them. (laughs) Just FYI. So now, okay, I'll say that, but I'll give context. So with the exception of probably three organisations or three competitions, two of which are run by the Miss World organization. And then there's one other one that I can't think of right now. With that, with the exception of them, I am not a fan of pageants. I've never been a fan of pageants. And the reason why I say that that's an exception is because the organization, the Miss World organization in particular, uh, they actually work. They raise funds. The Miss World organization has raised about $700 million in their time, 60 years. I personally, while I was Mr. World, raised about $3 million. And the Miss World, at the time that I was Mr. World, raised $30 million. Um, the, the, the girls are far more effective just because the market is much bigger. But And while I was Mr. World, I traveled to South Korea, I traveled to Australia, I traveled to America. We were doing things like moving um, hospital equipment that, from closing down hospitals to send them over to Africa. Um, I worked a lot with children's organizations. So we actually did things. And I think that's great. And I think whatever allows you to do that is fantastic. And I I just think that outside of that, when it's, we're going to call you a Mr. or Mr. just because, you know, you look pretty and we need to try and make money off you. I'm like, no, that's not. And I just think maybe I'm, maybe I'm going, maybe I've been in it so long that I've just seen all the darker sides of it. And I'm like, no, no, no. And, but there's a few golden nuggets. I was very fortunate to be able to be part of one. 
I'm very, very happy that I could represent Ireland in, in the way that I did and do the good that I did. And it's kind of led me on this this journey. But kind of like as a whole, I'd be like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I've spoken to Pamela Uba, who's our current Miss Ireland, about yeah. her experience. And, and the competitions have really evolved. They've yeah. had to be. And they talk about beauty with purpose. Yes. And we spoke about just because somebody looks a certain way, you can't underestimate them either and it's okay to be smart intelligent have empathy and heart yes. and want to get dressed up I, actually I'm glad you said that because I skipped over that point um, so many in fact I think almost every single person that I've met um, in that industry with the competitions particularly the girls the last question they ask is on oh, what do you do and I'm talking but we're talking to girls that are and guys these are engineers they're doctors they're scientists they're surgeons I'm talking really qualified very intelligent very well experienced individuals and it's because they're taking part in a competition that's easy to go oh well you look pretty everything else doesn't matter and I hate that yeah I hate that yeah. so you know but what I wanted to ask you was did you have to sacrifice your health and wellness in any way to to prepare for that show were you very conscious of looking at a certain way and did that come at us at a cost Do you know it's funny so we're going back 12 years and I, I have to kind of think of the person that I was 12 years ago um naive and innocent and probably a lot more yeah you know I need to look good and sound good but also look good you know so uh, did I have to sacrifice anything no I was it gave me structure because I I trained a lot it kept me fit and healthy and it, it forced me to think about what I wanted to do with myself um, I've always had goals and passions and dreams and things that I wanted, but it it was a vehicle that let me work proactively on those things. It was like, okay, here's an opportunity, and if I do A, B, and C, I'll be able to get to where I want to go. So, you know, without that, then, you know, I might have found something else or I might have done something else, but that was what it was for me. So sacrifice, no, but it was a great opportunity. How much of a role does health and wellness play in your life day to day now? Um, it's something that I am conscious of every single day. And the reason is because I'm the type of person that over the years I've become very aware of how I need to live my life physically, emotionally, spiritually to be okay. I, you know, and you know, I've, I've between, you know, fa- you know, I've had family that have, well, we all have struggles and challenges and things like that. And I've just kind of learned as I've grown up, you know, patterns that are not healthy. And for me, when I get to that space that I'm in the gym or just exercising and I'm eating well, everything about me is different. Um, I'm a stronger person and I don't mean physically. And it's as much for the mind. It's more for actually the older I get, it's more for the mind than it is for the body. So... Health and well-being is it's it's always on my mind, and actually to the point where, when I know that I'm too busy to look after myself, I feel bad about the fact that I'm too busy to look after myself. So, you know. yeah, I mean, the more time passes, it's the it, it's one of the best things about getting older is that you get to know yourself more, and you get to recognise those patterns, you get to recognise yeah. those behaviours, and tweak them yeah. as you go. That's one thing I say as I yeah. look in the mirror and see someone yeah. different <laughs> to my 24 year old self. So I mentioned you're involved in the Great Pink Run for yes. Breast Cancer Ireland, and it's something that's very close to you personally. You have family members. I think there's not a family in Ireland hasn't mm. been touched by cancer but your uncle Tony had breast cancer and we don't often hear a discussion of men and breast cancer 
Yeah, so I, I have a very large family on my mum's side. And unfortunately, there has been a number, I think, you know, I think this is the reason why we're we're researching it and trying to get to the source of it. But uh, a number of my family have have had uh, have passed away because of cancer. Uh, my uncle Tony, who was actually my cousin, but he was that much older than me that he was always Uncle Tony. Um, he had breast cancer a number of years ago, and he managed to kind of come through with it um, and get it under control. And unfortunately, it uh, it kind of came back, and it came back in multiple ways uh, very recently. And I think it was eventually, I, th- I don't actually know the details, but I won't speculate too much, but I think it might have been actually bowel cancer in the end. Um, but he passed away only uh, last month. Suddenly, he he just said that he had pains. Um, he was speaking to my mom. He said he went to the hospital because he had pains. And, they, you know, he didn't come back out again, so... That was my that was my uncle Tony, and over the years there's three family members that would have been close to my mum, and then through my mum would have been closer to myself and my sister. Um, my auntie Vivian, she passed away quite a number of years ago um, because of cancer. My auntie uh, and a cousin actually um, from the same so a mum and a daughter from the same family, um, and uh, you know it was it was again breast cancer and bowel cancer. Um, so and my cousin she was only forty. And her mum passed away then a, a year after, I think about a year after that again with bowel cancer. So it's something that has, it's, it's, it's always been around, um, or at least from a, from a certain point in my life, it's always been there. Uh, I think my aunt Vivian passed away when I was in my early 20s. Um, and since then, every couple of years, it has, it has, it's just always been there. And then I've had friends, I have friends actually, um, who have have brushed with 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 cancer, whether it was skin cancer, uh, or actually two fr- friends that have had and have still have breast cancer, and it's just again, it's becoming too common. It's becoming a, just a thing that we hear about all the time. I hear about it, you know, everybody hears about it, and I remember when I first m- kind of got to know the guys at Breast Cancer Island. Um, this was a number of years ago. I did. I remember doing a fundraiser. And I, I just started to research a bit more and more and more, and I just discovered how out of the blue this can be sometimes, and how sometimes there doesn't need to be a pattern of things, um, whether it's genetics or whether it, it could be anything. And that, that, that kind of scared me a bit. And I don't know all the details, and I don't know any facts, so I don't want to be, you know, people should be taking my word on this, but I know in my experience it has it is not always, and actually it's becoming less the case where you have cancer because you have a bad habit. It's it's really actually not that in a lot of the cases. Um, so it just goes to show how important it is that we figure out what it is that causes yeah. this um, and why research is so important. So that then is just so important. And that's kind of one of the reasons why um, I like to work with Breast Cancer Island, but you know, other charities as well, but particularly Breast Cancer Island. Well, firstly, I'm sorry that you lost special family members. It doesn't discriminate and it's very unfair. Mm. Uh, but at a time like that, you do feel so helpless. And that's why to try and turn it into something positive, I think is it, it, almost we feel pulled to do it. And I think there'd be so many people taking part in the Great Pink Run who are mm. doing it for somebody they lost or because they went through it or because they want to help others yeah. to raise money because, you know, that's what the research does. Because as you say, yes... It, 
for for somebody it doesn't it doesn't end well and it doesn't get mm. the, the the ending we hope but the research has come so far so yeah. that for many people they do get well and they do go on because of the funding that yeah. has been raised and the research that has gone on and certainly among my friends from time to time it would come up a discussion about being breast aware or breast cancer mm. or minding ourselves do men talk about that in the same way or would your family no. members have after your Uncle Tony's diagnosis? No, no. Um, well, first of all, I'll only speak for myself because uh, maybe there are some men and in fact, there, I'm sure there are some men that do. My Uncle Tony would have been maybe an example because, you know, he probably would have spoken to my mum about it. Although I don't know how much. I know for myself that, you know, do men talk about these things? No, not anybody that I know. Um, it's not something that we would bring up if we were worried about it, the only times I've ever talked about it was in the context of somebody else being ill or if I was researching it and and having a conversation around it, but it was never personalized, which is something that needs to change because, you know, as I'm still learning every day, just how impactful a conversation can be uh, for everything, you know. Um, and when it comes to just worrying about things or learning more about things, just being able to shift a load um, cancer or any kind of illness can bring an awful lot of stress. Um, and you know, actually, what's really what gets me is I remember, and there's probably people who, who can relate to this. I remember my my cousin. She had three children. She was like I said, forty. I think maybe forty two. And she had gotten to the point where she kind of had ex- she had accepted that she was going to go. It was very, very soon. I think the whole thing was over a period of two or three months. And she got to the point where she was literally saying, um, look, I know I'm going to die. It's fine. Let's just get over that. And then she would change it to how can I, how, how could she help like her family through this? And, you know, you kind of get to that point and you're kind of going, well, you, you know, you're, it's not that she wasn't even fighting anymore, but it's like, I, I don't know, I don't know how, to, how do you, how do you deal with that? And her kids were there, you know, and my cousins, uh, my second cousins, I guess, you know, they were, they were all like seven and 11 and, you know, they were young and you don't know, is it strength? I mean, it is, is it fear? Yeah. Is it that, I don't know, are you, are you know, you, are you giving up in some way? I don't know, maybe not, but what can you do? And when you get to that point, it's like, um, it's almost like you feel helpless the outside, you know, the other person would feel helpless and you, you know, you've kind of got nowhere to go. Except then when you, when you have organizations like Breast Cancer Ireland, that you have a resource, that you have people who know what they're doing, who can really make an impact. So I guess, you know, again, that's just kind of bringing me back around to, I think I've almost lost track of the question there. No, but turning a negative (laughs) into a positive, positive, you're right, because it is a helplessness you feel, but that strength that people find to go through something like that is just incredible. I don't know where they find it or how they do it, but it'll be for your cousin, for your Uncle Tony and for anyone else touched like this that you will be doing the Great Pink Run this year. And it's going to be hybrid for the first time because we've all been a bit discombobulated over the last couple of years. We couldn't all come together. So a lot of it was hybrid that you could do it online and upload it to the website. So it's going to be both. Mm -hmm. You can find out all about how to register, all about where everything, the funding goes at greatpinkrun.ie. But I think it's really important as well, Kamal, 
to tell people you don't have to be an athlete. Like it is a no. take 10k run, but yeah. you can choose whatever distance you do. You can crawl it, yeah. you can skip it. It's I, kids, I, yeah. all generations. It's a completely inclusive event. No, exactly. I think that's the that's the cool thing, and probably one of the good things that has come out of the whole virtual thing is like everything is so much more accessible. So, you know, if you are an athlete and you really want to go for it, great. If you're not, that's also fine. I think the great thing about being virtual is that you can do the run or the walk anywhere, anytime over the course of those dates. Um, and if it's something that you do every day, if you go for your morning walk, then you can, you know, count that in during, during, during those times and raise funds and raise awareness. So uh, that virtual aspect, I think, really does make it a lot more inclusive. And, you know, it's a, it's a way to give you an, another reason to uh, to get up in the morning and go for that run or walk. Yeah, no, definitely. There's always an incredible atmosphere on the day if you can make it. So the physical Great Pig Run events take place in Dublin on Sunday the 9th and in Kilkenny on Sunday the 16th or you can participate in a virtual sense. Yeah. For more, go to greatpinkrun.ie. Kamal Ibrahim, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, Pauline Rodish is the founder of Phenomenal Results and is known as the mindset detective online. She started her career in the guards, but something told her there was more for her and she began on another path, leaning into her intuition as she went. She's just written her first book, Just Trust, and Pauline Rodish joins me in studio now. Pauline, how are you? Really well, Claire. Thank you so much for having me here. How does it feel to be having interviews about the book now? Because I'm sure it was an idea and then a project and then a slog at times. And now it's out in the world. It's been out since June and I'm really grateful for the opportunity of sharing it in this capacity. Um, it's I've had a great response already, in fact, Claire. Um, people are reaching out. So I am now convinced that the message, even though I was in turmoil many times writing that book, um, questioning myself, doubting myself, and interesting that the book is called Just Trust. I mean, that's I, it was towards the latter end of writing it that the name of the book actually came. And I recognised that the whole journey of writing the book in, 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 in and of itself required me to trust. And is it true that it took you years and years and years to write this book? Well, the idea came many, many years ago, I suppose, when I was probably faced with one of the bigger challenges in my life, when I met my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, you know, and uh, he was only three months separated and he had two young children. And obviously, I probably wouldn't have naturally chosen that. It wasn't actually on the cards. You know, I never really thought I would actually be in that position. But nonetheless, that's how life works. And again, the inner voice was saying to me, you know, this is something that you need. Of course, he was a lovely guy, very charming, very kind, ticked a lot of boxes. We just happened to have a man who was recently separated with two young children and my father, who is a very strict Catholic. And I knew that that was going to be controversial. I knew it was going to cause a bit of ructions, as they say, in the camp. So you were channeling all your focus there? Very much so. I knew even at that stage that, you know, I had a choice either to continue and pursue that relationship, um, which obviously I did. But I also knew very, very strongly at that time I never wanted to fall out with my father. I, I felt this as an opportunity to find common ground because I had had a history of just knowing and having different points of view to my father around religion in particular. Grateful for much of my upbringing in that regard, but I knew he was a good man, my father, very kind, very sincere, very loving, very empathetic and really felt he was doing his best raising us in that way. But here I am meeting someone who's married before, breaking clearly one of the commandments, you know, of my religious upbringing and everything that I really believed as a child growing up um, came full, you know, very much out in front of my mind. And I just thought, no, this is an opportunity 
to transcend, you know, all what I had been raised with and to find common ground. It was very important that I didn't fall out with my dad. That And, and really it was all about loving him and respecting his way and really wanting him to respect mine. Did it just take time? Do your husband and dad get on now? Oh, very, very well. Absolutely. My father loves him. He's really like an, a, a fifth son, in fairness. I mean, there's other son-in-laws as well, but I'm just saying he's like, you know, he's very much fitted into the family. My father would treat people as he finds them, but he was very concerned about me breaking a commandment and therefore, you know, definitely going to hell, you know. And he was trying to protect me from all of that. But I was trying to reassure my father that God was not a judge as we were taught. And it's something I had felt from a very young age when we were saying the rosary every night, kneeling down. And I just thought, they've got it all wrong here. This is not how to know God, because really it was fear mongering around God. And I just said, if God is love, how can we, why are we so afraid? And I felt that that fear has just stayed in a lot of people, you know, and prevented us from really tapping into our authentic self and being who we are. And I, I think a lot of people going around don't know who they are. They don't even know what they want. And I find that in the work that I do now today. But absolutely, very, very quickly, um, I was very clear that the relationship with my husband and my boyfriend at the time and my father that you know, we would make it work. I always had this intention that I can make this work. And, you know, there was innocent children involved. Uh, it wasn't easy for anybody. But nonetheless, it was absolutely something that I value very much in my life. I feel like I've grown so much as a person that has gone through that and been able to sustain the love and the joy in my family particularly with my father and um, my stepchildren who are now 29 and 30 years of age. So and I think it's amazing that you you are talking about this because I, I don't really think we talk enough about our personal lives and how important that is. It's all about our careers and the mm-hmm. working that we're doing. So yes, you had this idea for a book, but your personal life needed yeah. you. Your family relationships, your new relationship, taking on stepchildren and navigating yes. through that. I know you went on to have your your own son yes. um, and there were fertility struggles there. Yes. That takes energy. That takes time. So now, through all of that learning, now became the time to write the book. It did because I think in a way, I probably had to, you know, have evidence, you know, and maybe that's the old guard in me. But I felt, you know, I couldn't write a book without having some kind of closure on certain ideas that I had. But I didn't realise that whilst my meeting my husband was a challenge, I, I had many more challenges as life went on, you know, with our emigration to Australia, in inverted commas, a failed emigration, my journey to fertility, um, having been told at only 18 and in my 20s and in my 30s, not to bore people who've heard the story before, but that I would not have children. And initially, you know, I, I looked across the table at the doctor who didn't investigate anything. There was no blood test. There was nothing. And it was just based on a very erratic menstrual cycle that that diagnosis was made. And I walked out of there at 18 years of age. Didn't know who to turn to, but knew deep down in my heart that, sorry, this that this was something that I would make happen. Fertility is such a, turf, a tough journey, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. you have your son. I know he's a, a teenager now. 16 and a half, yes. You know, and 18 is is is, is, is a long time ago, mm-hmm. but that hurt is still there that you yeah. were, your wish to be a mom almost. was yeah. not validated and was not cherished in that moment. You no. were just dismissed with a yeah. with a diagnosis and sent out into the street. At 18, you know, and, and what did I really know? Very little. But in my heart, I just knew, being the eldest of six kids, that I always wanted to be a mother. 
And, you know, I feel for a lot of mothers out there that I've actually even worked with who haven't been so successful. And for some reason, again, I just feel very blessed that there was something inside of me that I listened to, which was don't let that in. Now, honestly, I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but I, I, I really was, I felt it. I said, no, this is not going to be true for me. And even though I was raised to respect authority figures, doctors, etc., and take their word as gospel, my desire to be a mother was greater. And so I didn't let it in. Now, of course, I'm lucky that there was never anything found that would have indicated that I couldn't have children, even though when I was being, sorry to be so graphic, but the day I was being artificially inseminated, one of the nurses said to me, this probably won't work. I have to tell you that this probably won't work. And so I can remember just waving her remark away with my left hand and looking her in the eye. And I said, I understand why you're saying that to me, but this is going to work. And I did get pregnant, you know, and uh, I, I suppose that just to go back to what you're asking me about the book, there were many, many challenges, of course, and I'm grateful for them, though. Because in the work that I do now, I understand people and I can help them because I really understand them. So you've touched on moments where your intuition spoke to you mm-hmm. with your relationship with your your dad, with, you know, starting a new relationship with the divorcee, with your own fertility journey. But let's go back to what you touched on there, that you started in the Garda Siakana. That was something else that your dad had introduced you to. Well, yes, uh, my own grandfather, his father, uh, a County Kerry man from Cahar Daniel, was one of the first guards in 1922. So obviously we're celebrating 100 years this year. And so he was the 11th member of Angar, the Siakana, and he was stationed in the Aran Islands. That was his first station where he met my grandmother. And my dad was raised in Galway, Connemara. And I suppose, like, you know, it's a little bit like the family that grows up with the teachers, the doctors, the nurses as um, role models. I grew up with uniforms. My father had been in the guards himself briefly. And then he was in the prison service when I was born. And then, of course, we lived on the North Sector Road in Dublin, Fibsborough. So we had Mountjoy Prison one side, the Matter Hospital the other side, and Mountjoy Garda Station. So I was surrounded with it. We Family members, we knew everybody, I suppose, in the station. It was one of those, in those times, growing up in the 60s and 70s in Dublin. So people would come in with their uniforms, have the cup of tea. Very, very familiar. Prisoners came in too. That's in the book too. I'll tell you all about that again. But um, the uniform was very much prevalent and everybody would say, Paul, you'd be a great guard, you'd be a great guard. And I thought, yeah, do you know, I think I'd like that. I'd like to go out there and do something meaningful and, you know, work in society. There's plenty of variety, which I always enjoyed. And I remember Joan Brennan, uh, who was one of the guards in Store Street, I went down and I tried on her uniform and the hat and the whole lot and practiced the interview techniques. And I then went to France and I au paired over there for six months and got the call from my dad to say that the uh, medical was was coming up and the oral Irish interview. So when I got back, landed back from France within 24 hours, 48 hours, I was up in the depot in the gar- in the Phoenix Park doing my oral Irish in French, basically, because I'd only spoken French for six months. And I was, it was a real mixture. I was mostly French. Can you believe it? Um, <laughs> which was I was thrilled about in one way, but I actually thought that's it. I failed, you know, but. I was man. I managed to explain myself that I had just got off the boat um, from France, but uh, then I did the medical that day. Sure, look at I found out about ten days later that I was going into Templemore. And I always think when I look at the guards, God, how could you do that job? Because to me, you're just going to negative situations time and time again. Yeah. Bar the odd signature for a driving license, which also seems like a bit of hassle. Yeah. But you speak in the book in quite a warm way about 
what a part of the community yes. a guard can be. And I hadn't really given it that much thought. Well, look, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I was exposed to some of probably, you know, the saddest parts of life, seeing a lot of young people, drug addicts and you know, worked in the inner city mostly. And um, it was very sad to see what I what I witnessed. And But the other side of it was when I went out to Terenure, I had an opportunity to go into the community policing side of things. And I loved it. I loved being out in the community going into school sometimes doing talks again loved talking to the children and I very much loved talking to the older people and I knew that they need a lot of lonely people out there and so you'd you'd visit them you'd have a cup of tea and it was just meant so much but it was very much I've always felt I gained probably more than they did and you talk about investigative Mm -hmm. life of a guard being like a honed intuition because I suppose you do have to read energy as a guard, get a feeling when you're gathering evidence Mm -hmm. that they are quite in tune with their intuition. Yeah, it's been recognised that anybody in the police force worldwide would actually over time because of the practices of investigation, getting to know people and the nature of the work, you know, we're usually solving crimes of some description and even sometimes people reporting crimes, are they telling the truth, you know? So, I mean, you're, you're looking for the truth, you're looking for evidence, you're looking for, um, obviously, clues. And so you do hone your intuition. So you become quite sharp at reading people, their behaviours, their non-verbal communications as much as their verbal communication. So, yes, and that has helped me enormously. But your intuition was saying this job isn't for me. And in Ireland, we cling to um, public service jobs. Mm -hmm. It's a job for life. That's what we say. But you were thinking, no, this is this is not for me. I I guess I recognised quite early on that um, it wasn't all I thought it was going to be. And I felt again, and and, and when I say I feel, I'm really talking about that inner voice inside. It's even though it's something that you hear, it's more something that you feel inside of you. So I, I kind of knew actually there's more to life. I want to see the world. Um, I cannot see myself being here for 30 years. And, you know, while a lot of my colleagues were quite happy to do that, I, I just felt that it wasn't for me. So, you know, a couple of things happened that kind of pushed me out. Um, I haven't spoken about them out loud, but I have referenced it in the book that, uh, you know, something did happen. And it, it allowed me to make a big decision, but I wouldn't recommend it to everybody to go that route. And I eventually decided, OK, I want to travel. So British Airways came up and I had applied for Aer Lingus as well. But then I eventually took British Airways because I wanted to go further afield. You know, at that time, going back in the, the early 90s, I wanted to go all over the world, which I had the opportunity of doing. So when did making honing intuition and helping people hone theirs or listen to theirs become more of a career path? How did it start? Believe it or not, when I was working for British Airways, I had my first miscarriage. And that led me down the route of energy healing. One of my colleagues recommended Reiki to me at the time and I hadn't really heard of it. And so I went for some sessions myself and I got very interested because I felt, I really felt I was healing as a result of it. And I got very interested in energy. And of course, I went on and did all the various trainings in that, um, multiple trainings in other modalities that were energy based as well. Anywhere that I could understand myself a little bit more with a view to helping people and to maybe make some decisions. So I was doing most of this while I was still working for British Airways. And eventually I had an opportunity of uh, meeting Deepak Chopra in person. This is a teacher that I'd been introduced to in my 20s. And given that I had always had this feeling that, you know, there was another way to know God and to live in harmony with our 
sense of self, our spirit connect to something greater than what we see in the mirror, more than this three-dimensional being that we see reflected back in a mirror. When I heard Deepak talking for the first time, I thought, oh my God, I'm not mad. You know, this is actually somebody is saying something to me that I that I had always understood but couldn't articulate and certainly had nobody to share it with. So when the opportunity arose for him to come to Ireland, a, a book signing, I went along. I was 41 at the stage. Um, no, sorry, 43 in fact. And then they announced they were having a retreat in Dublin at City West. So I signed up. I said, that's it. Full week away from my son who was only two at the time. But I knew I had to do it again. That voice was just saying, go, you have to be there. It was called the seduction of spirit. And I can assure you, my spirit was seduced big time. Was that a pivotal moment in your life out in City West? Yes. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I couldn't believe my luck that he was in Ireland and doing this retreat. In fact, it was the very first time he'd taken his retreat outside of the United States. And 560 people gathered in City West from all over the world, um, from Peru and Australia, New Zealand. It was just amazing. And a huge contingency of Irish people there too, awakening to something phenomenal that Deepak just led us in this amazing week-long retreat. And Finn was only two at the time, two and a half. And I'd never left him for more than a couple of hours. But this meant I was going for seven days. And my husband Declan said, go. We know this is going to, we're all going to benefit. He just knew. And it was just the most fantastic time. I practiced yoga twice a day there, meditated a hundred times a day. The, the, the memory of a childhood message that I'd received when I was six, reluctantly saying that rosary, I had heard uh, in my right ear, there is another way. And like, I never ever shared that with anybody. But during that retreat, it came up that message because you're deep in meditation and it's almost like you've direct access into your soul and your subconscious mind and up comes the memory. And I remember really tears over the year, the years that I'd suppressed, the tears just started to flow. And I realized in that moment, of course, there is another way. There is another way to know God, which I'd always known. There is another way to be married. Now I'm married to a man who was married before. There is another way to have children. I have two stepchildren. I got fertility treatment. There is another way to find your purpose in life. I'd already had multiple careers at this point. So it all made sense. And I felt the timing of it. I was 43. It was just amazing. And I was in a very lucky position too. We had a really good thriving business at the time. I was helping my husband. I was also able to be with my son for those early years and raise him with some help uh, from time to time. But, you know, we then had an opportunity at the retreat to train as yoga and meditation teachers if we wanted to. And I had fallen in love with the style of yoga and I had fallen in love with the style of meditation. So I just put my hands up, rang my husband. I said, I'm doing it. He said, go for it. And it meant travel. It meant going to Florida. It meant going to California. And I did. And I've never looked back. I have never looked back. I successfully taught yoga and meditation for almost 12 years. COVID put, I had a couple of studios. I put, closed my studio last year. And I wanted the house and it's now my son's den, which is perfect really for him. But then of course, um, God, the universe has other ideas. So I've kind of, my, my work has evolved. So now I, I'm teaching yoga, but in a whole different way through, you know, hypnotherapy and coaching, believe it or not, because I love sharing the ancient wisdom. Because it's so interesting to me, I'm, I have the deepest respect of people who are still fully in the faith of their religion. Absolutely. But for lots of people, they have, you know, moved away from that, but haven't necessarily replaced it with anything true. else. And our Very spiritual true. connection it's so important to our health and wellness. We just got it a little bit confused with religion. Um, I completely agree with you. And I think it's so important for people 
to have something in their lives because so many of us grew up here with the Catholic Church and I always think about my own dad saying, look, I was given out as a teenager saying, I'm bored, it's boring. And he was like, just, you know, take in the music, take in the candles, take a moment to reflect on the week just gone and the week ahead. That's what I do. And that is a really important part Completely. of church. So is community. So yes. is coming together. And if all of that's gone, where do you where do you find it? No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I've really thought about this myself over the years. Um, you're right, because the people, because religion was very much pressurised in many homes in this country. And again, I too have respect for those who have a strong faith. I think now, especially with things that have happened over the years within the Catholic Church, I think a lot of people have just distanced themselves from any sense of anything being greater than what they see in their lives and their circumstances. There's a great absence of knowing that they are spiritual beings and that they have a soul and that they have higher powers such as their intuition. And it's very sad because without that, people feel lost. I hear it all the time because then you're inclined just to live in this world where it's it's quite shallow and it's very temporary and people don't realise things can be taken away from them, as I've experienced. And where do you go when that happens? Well, there's only one place to go and that is inside because the answers are inside. I know it's cliched, but it is the truth and it is the journey back to self, really. And so so this is why when we have those challenges, if people could see them as an opportunity for growth and to be able to look at them in a whole different way, that this there's a learning in this for me. I'm able to grow within this. What is it teaching me? Who can I become? You know, and perhaps then you're able to almost shed some of those layers that were irrelevant anyway, trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know, the imposter syndrome and all these things where we put pressure on ourselves, comparing ourselves, competing. And it's exhausting. It really is exhausting. And and it's just, it sends us down a, a, a very sad pathway, leads to addictions, habits that are not serving a person, um, staying in things that settling for less than they could and should even though I don't like the word should very often because it puts an awful lot of guilt on people. But we do settle and we settle in our relationships, in our careers, because we don't realise we're not tapped into this inner voice that is just saying, you can change your mind. You don't have to believe that anymore. Those limiting beliefs need to be challenged now. It's about challenging the status quo. It's about breaking moulds and families and dynamics that are really expired and serve no purpose any longer. They're outdated. And I think some people, when they hear, oh, higher power or their higher mm-hmm. self, they're a bit overwhelmed by that or, they, yes. or they're put off by that. But I don't think there's a person that hasn't felt something in their gut like, yes, this job isn't for me. This relationship isn't me. You have walked into a room and thought, oh, I think there was a row in here yes. earlier or we meet a yes. person and we're really drawn to, drawn to, to them, them yeah. or we're like, oh, I'm not sure about them. I mean, that's part of it, it isn't is it? It is all part of it. It is all part of it. And even, you know, when you're kind of sitting there at night and you're wondering, you know, is this all there is? Asking that question again is an opportunity. That's, that is actually your soul guiding you to investigate, explore, get curious and to realise there is so much more because a lot of people are caught up in their circumstances and they think this is all there is. This is the deck of cards I've been dealt when we, there's so much evidence out there of people that have turned their lives around from sorrows and tragedies and personal, you know, amputations and all sorts of and so many people I could relate to born without limbs that just go on to do phenomenal things in their lives. It's attitude. It's a mindset. It's a connection to something greater than themselves. So what's step one for people? 
Well, step one is if you're asking questions such as, is there more for me? Know that the answer is yes, number one. And, you know, hit the pause button and say, okay, I'm I'm going to give this a go. It's definitely worthy of my exploration. And so you have to step back from the noise and the chaos and the distractions because, you know, your, your truth, your authenticity, the true self within and accessing all these powers that you have, they are, if you like, up against all the limiting beliefs and the distractions of society and how we're supposed to be and how we're meant to be, you know, in inverted commas, of course. And so we have to be very deliberate and very committed to wanting to know who am I and what am I about and what do I even want? The amount of people that contact me and say, Paul, I don't even know what I want. It's actually quite frightening that they do not know what they want and it's not their fault. And I'm not saying that in any judgmental way, you know, I've great empathy for people, but there's a, ma- a lot of people that actually don't know what they want. They don't know who they are. I hear this so often. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want. I don't feel good enough. I feel like I don't matter. I feel invisible. And then really all you're doing is helping them tune into themselves. You're not giving them those answers. You're helping them find it within themselves. I find the whole topic absolutely fascinating, Pauline, and I could talk to you all day. The book is called Just Trust. And for more, you can go to themindsetdetective.com. Pauline Rodish, thank you so much for coming on. Claire, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey, and to Hugo De Silva, who is on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.